Did you know that without touching a single piece of land, you can sail from the United States of America to India in a straight line? Do you know that? Don't believe me? Have a look at this map. See? <laughs> USA, like Alaska, to India in a straight line. Still don't believe me? Take a look at this video. There you are. We start up there, a straight line without touching any land, all the way from the United States to India. You get it? Some of you are like, oh, I don't see it. All the airline pilots are like, come on, this is obvious. Now, you might have been tricked because the first map, put it back up. The first map I showed you is a, a 2D representation of the world that we live in. And the world is not 2D. There you go. Now you know I'm not a flat earther. <laughs> the world is 3D, but this is a 2D representation. And for now, our computer screens are only in two dimensions. So we have to make some compromises when we want to represent what is actually 3D in two dimensions. And here, that compromise means that what is in 3D, a straight line, turns into a parabolic curve in two dimensions. I think this difference between 2D and 3D is illustrative of the difference between how we see things and how God sees things. We see things in two dimensions. We can't possibly understand how could we go from the United States to India on the water in a straight line without touching any land. We just can't get it. But God doesn't see things the way we see things. He has an extra dimension to the way he sees things, like a, a third dimension relative to our two dimensions. He sees exactly how we can do that, go straight from the U.S. to India in a straight line. And today, Jesus is going to add an extra dimension to our understanding of money. He's going to invite us to see things from God's perspective, rather than just from the perspective of us, these 2D flat earthers that we are. And I hope that through this perspective shift, you might come to experience freedom from the things that are binding you when it comes to money. Well, good morning. My name's Ellis. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us in worship on this Veterans Day weekend. I want to add my thanks to those of others, to all of our veterans who are here, who are online, and to uh, your family members. Without you and your service to this country and the free nations of this earth, we would not be where we are today. So thank you, veterans and your families, for your service. We're continuing, <coughs> excuse me, we're continuing in our series, Mastering Your Money. Jesus We've said this teaches more on the topic of money than anything else except the kingdom of God. So I guess it was important for him to share with his disciples in their journey of discipleship about money. And over these five weeks, we're going to be learning from Jesus how to master our money rather than allowing our money to master us. And today we're going to look at three things Jesus teaches us about money and one parable that he tells and my hope is that through our study of God's word, your perspective on money might shift. And if you have any guilt or regrets or shame about money, that it might lift. So we're in Luke chapter 16. You're welcome to grab a Bible and turn there now. If you grab a pew Bible, it's on page 875. So we're in Luke chapter 16, 
page 875 of the Bibles in front of you. In this week's passage, as I already mentioned, Jesus tells a, a parable, and then he teaches on money. This parable is perhaps one of the hardest parables to understand. At first glance, it appears that Jesus is commending a thief for his thievery. And so Luke, I think in his wisdom, chose to put the teaching of Jesus on money immediately after this parable to try and help us understand what on earth this parable could possibly mean. And so to help make sure that we don't misunderstand the parable, we're actually going to start with the teaching. And the teaching begins in verse 9. The the clue to that is the words, and I tell you. So that's where Jesus' teaching following the parable begins. So take a look. Luke chapter 16, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. I remember growing up with my dad, we'd often be walking around towns or or cities in in the UK where we lived, and we would come across someone on the street who was begging for money. And my dad would always have come prepared with a banknote in his pocket. And he would walk right up to the person who was begging, take the, the banknote out of his pocket, hand it to them, and say, God bless you. Now, this astounded me because we were not a particularly wealthy family. There were seasons in our life where we, we didn't know how we were going to put food on the table. Thankfully, the Lord provided for us. But this would always astound me, my dad's generosity in this manner. And And it left me wondering, why on earth would he do it? And through conversation, I came to understand. My dad knew that the purpose of money was different than what the world tells us the purpose of money is. He had a different perspective. I might say God's perspective on the purpose of money. And in fact, this is the first thing Jesus teaches us, the purpose of money. My dad understood the purpose of money was not what the world believed it was. And although I don't necessarily commend following his, what I might call, unscrupulous giving, I do commend his mindset. And it's the same mindset Jesus teaches us in these verses. Verse 9, Jesus tells us that the purpose of money is ultimately to secure our eternal dwelling. Take a look at verse 9 again. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, the Greek word mammon, which is here translated wealth, refers to both money and possessions. And Jesus tells us that we are given money and possessions not so that we can amass more wealth on earth, but rather that we can secure our eternal wealth. Jesus, in in his choice of words here, is actually making reference back to the parable, which we're going to look at soon. 
He encourages us to use this unrighteous wealth, by which he means the the wealth of this world, this unrighteous world that we live in. He encourages us to use this unrighteous wealth to make friends who will welcome us into the eternal dwellings. Now, that's a little bit tricky to understand, but perhaps the linking of friends here with eternal dwellings suggests that Jesus might actually be referring to these friends as as angels who might advocate on our behalf to God when they see our acts of generosity and say to God, this person is worthy of the eternal dwelling that God, you have prepared for them. That's one possible understanding of that verse. Regardless of what the exact words mean, that the general sense is clear. Jesus is saying how we use our money in this life will have an eternal impact. We might say the purpose of money is to make an eternal investment. We've been given wealth, Jesus says, not to invest in this life, but in eternity. This is this 2D to 3D shift that's going on, right? This is God's perspective, adding that eternal dimension. And one way that we can invest eternally is to use this unrighteous wealth that we've been given to make friends for ourselves, to to give generously, to do acts of mercy, to, to give away for the benefit of others. So that's the first thing Jesus teaches us, the purpose of money, to make an eternal investment. The second thing Jesus teaches on is the proving of money, the proving of money. In high school and college, after the summer break, I would return to preseason rugby practice, and every preseason rugby practice would begin with a test of our cardiovascular fitness. It involved a lot of running back and forth between some cones and a lot of dropping to your chest and getting back up and running back and forth again. It was horrible. After the test, people would often pass out or throw up. You know, I I remember it so vividly, or rather I remember parts of it so vividly between the sections where I passed out. It was designed to push you to your limits, and it did. It was a proving ground to see how hard you had been working on your cardiovascular fitness over the summer. And in the same way, Jesus says, Money is a proving ground. Money's a test. We're given money to demonstrate whether we are faithful or whether we are dishonest. And based upon that test, we will either be given more or we won't. Take a look again, verse 10 to 12. Jesus says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, remember that's the wealth that we have in this world, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And again, Jesus says, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, in other words, everything we have in this world belongs to another, namely God, it's all God's, We are given the opportunity to steward it, to take care of it. Jesus says, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus says, money in this world is a proving ground. If we prove faithful in how we handle money, Jesus says we'll be given true riches, by which Jesus means 
heavenly riches, eternal riches that God alone can give us. And if we prove that we're faithful with what God entrusts to us in this life that rightfully belongs to him and one day will return to him, then in eternity, God will give us what will for eternity be ours. It will belong to us. Money in this life is a proving ground. How we use it will dictate how much we receive in eternity. See, this this is a different perspective, a third dimension, so to speak, an eternal perspective on money. So first, Jesus teaches on the purpose of money, making eternal investment. Jesus teaches the proving of money. Money's a, a test, it's a proving ground. And third and finally, Jesus teaches us the pull of money. During the last few years, a trend has been arising called overemployment. Anyone heard of it? Well, it's a trend for young people, especially those who work remotely, to have two full-time jobs. They balance the phone calls, the Zoom calls, the emails, the the calendars of, of both of these jobs, sometimes with two different computers open and two different calls going on at the same time, mute, unmute, mute, unmute, in order to get paid for both of those jobs. As you might expect, this takes a little bit of a toll on their lives. One 29-year-old software engineer said this, the money is incredible, so is the stress. I'll wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, this is the day I'm going to get found out. Another 25-year-old community manager described the changes in her life like this. When I had one job, I was the kind of person who put on makeup, dressed up, and went out often. After nine months of working two jobs, I couldn't sleep, I had gained weight, and I rarely saw my friends or family. In verse 13, Jesus makes a kind of general statement that I think applies to this trend. Here's what he says. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, you can't serve two different bosses at the same time. It will tear you apart, like we're seeing is happening to these young people working two full-time jobs. And then Jesus goes on to apply this general statement to the topic of money. He says, you cannot serve God and money. God and money, Jesus says, are like two competing bosses that you must choose between. You don't have the capacity to serve both of them. They are rivals of one another, and you must pick who will you serve, God or money. Recently, I uh, watched a video that was sent to me of a man named John Reinhardt, who's the founder of an organization called Gospel Patrons. He was, he was giving a presentation to a room full of financial advisors, and the title of his presentation was this, The Single Greatest Rival to Faith in Jesus Christ. What do you think he believed the single greatest rival to faith in Jesus Christ is? Money. And I would agree with him. In our context, in the United States, in the 21st century, the single greatest rival to faith in Jesus Christ is not another religion, it's not politics, it's not even family or friends, it's money. In our culture, money is the greatest rival that we face to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Money will lure you and pull you. Possessions will lure you and pull you away from God. And it won't stop. It won't give up. It's always there. It's always trying to get more and more of you and pull you down. It's the single greatest rival to faith in Jesus Christ. And if we try to serve both God and money, we will be torn apart. That is the pull of money. So Jesus says, we've got to choose. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to master your money, or are you going to let your money master you and pull you down? The purpose of money, the proving of money, and the pull of money. Jesus adds this third dimension to our view of money, an eternal dimension. He says that the purpose of money is to make eternal investments. He says that Money is going to prove whether we're faithful or not, and we will be rewarded based upon how we use our money. And not only that, money is going to try to pull us away from God so that we might lose that eternity with him. Now, in this section of teaching, not only is Jesus adding another kind of dimension to money, but he's raising the stakes. You get that? He's saying how you handle money will have eternal consequences. This is serious stuff. He says, if we handle it well, if we invest it eternally through acts of generosity and mercy, he says, God's going to pour out his eternal riches upon us. But if we allow money to pull us away from God, we waste our money, we throw our money away. The implication is that we will find ourselves impoverished forever. How we handle our money matters, Jesus says, not just now, but eternally. The stakes are high. But remember what I told you at the beginning. This was Jesus' follow-on teaching to a parable, right? So let's go back and read that parable. As I said, this parable is hard to interpret. It seems that Jesus is commending the actions of a thief. And so I want to help us today by inviting us to to look back at the previous chapter of the Bible. The previous chapter of the Bible is Luke chapter 15. It includes three stories of lost things being found, and the final story, the final parable, is the famous parable of the prodigal son. A young man who stole his inheritance, blew it all on sex, drugs, rock and roll, and then came back poor and penniless. And what did his father do? Loved him, accepted him, welcomed him with open arms. Didn't make him repay. Didn't force him into servitude. That's the story of the prodigal son. And I believe Luke puts this parable we're about to read immediately following that parable of the prodigal son for a very important reason. Because there are parallels between these parables that help us understand and interpret one another. So let's see if we can spot some of those parables, uh, parallels in the parables. Let's read from Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, you know, you know that word also? That's kind of a linking word. It's linking back to what's in the previous chapter. Okay, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So we're introduced to a rich man in this story. And as with all rich men in those days, he was a landowner. He didn't manage the land himself, though. He had a property manager to manage his property. 
Now, sadly, the rich man finds out that this property manager has been swindling him out of some of his possessions. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. And he, that's the rich man, called him, the manager, and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The, The rich man calls in the property manager, and he fires him on the spot. The evidence is sufficient. There's no further investigation needed. He says to the manager, turn in your books. You're done. Verse 3, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. The manager doesn't defend himself. He knows he's been caught red-handed. He's guilty. But then he starts to realize the enormity of his new circumstances. He's just been fired for cheating his boss out of money and now everyone is going to know. He's never going to be able to get another job doing what he's been doing. And more than that, he's too weak to take on manual labor, and he's too too ashamed to take on begging. So what can he do? Verse 4, I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Just like the prodigal son, the the manager hatches a plan. He realizes that he's got this small window of opportunity. Although his boss has already fired him, the word hasn't got out yet. People still think He is this trusted property manager. And he goes, I can use that to my advantage to make sure that on the other side of this, I've got some friends who are going to welcome me into their houses, who are are going to give me a job. That's what that phrase means. Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He, He calls in the tenants of the properties for which he has been managing for the master. And and he actually, as he calls them in, he pretends that he hasn't been fired. He says to the first one, how much do you owe my master? See that word my, he's still saying, yeah, he's still my master. Okay, you guys, they don't know. He's pretending, right? And in effect, he's asking them, what's the rent that is due on the land? Verse six, he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So the first tenant's an olive farmer. The annual rent due on his land is not based on money, but on product. The tenant will owe the landlord around 875,000 gallons of olive oil produced at harvest. I asked a friend of mine who works in the grocery business what it would cost to buy that much olive oil wholesale today. He said $25 million. The property manager says to this olive oil farming tenant, hey, I got a special discount on your rent from the boss. Make it half. He tells him, quickly, sign the rental agreement. Make the change. Verse 7. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The second tenant the manager calls in is a wheat farmer. His annual rent is about 1,000 bushels of wheat. And the manager says, hey, I got a 20% discount on your rent. Generous guy, that manager, uh, that, 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 that landlord. Take your rental agreement, make the change. Now, these tenants, they don't know that he's been fired. Both these tenants think that he is still this trusted manager who has managed the landlord's property. And they think he's negotiated a, a special discount from the landlord just for them. And they're probably overjoyed about it. They probably go back to their their families, their friends, the other farmers on the land. They say, you will not believe what happened today. 
Now one of them saying, oh my goodness, our rent got slashed in half. That landlord is so generous. I cannot believe he would do such a thing. Quick, grab the wine. Let's have a party. We've got to celebrate this. This is such good news. Now this, of course, then begs the question, what's the rich man going to do? What's the landlord going to do when he finds out? When he finds out that this, this manager who'd already been cheating him, cheats him again on the way out the door. Will the landlord tell everyone what has happened, press charges against the manager, and go to the tenants and say, hey, he was cheating, you have to pay the original price. I remember right now, this landowner, he's being celebrated. The peasant farmers love him. Like, this is the most generous guy we've ever met. If the landowner were to make public what had happened, if he were to press charges, if he were to claim the full rental amount, he wouldn't be known as generous. He'd be known as stingy. And so what does he do? What does he do? Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The landlord decides to let it slide. He doesn't call out the former manager. He doesn't demand the original rent. Instead, he gives up millions of dollars, what would be millions of dollars today. Why? Why? Because he is generous, and he wants to be known as a generous person. And in closing the parable, we, we have his final comment. He commends the manager. And you go, really? How can he commend the manager? How is that even possible? This man just cheated him out of a huge amount of money. How on earth can he be commended? Well, the key is to understand exactly what he commends the manager for. It was not his dishonesty, but he commended him for his shrewdness. The rich man, in effect, says something like, man, he was a cheeky little so-and-so, that manager. But he was oh so clever. And for that, the landowner doesn't deny that the manager was dishonest. He knows he was dishonest. But he admits that he was one shrewd operator. And then Jesus comments that, as is often the case, unbelievers are cleverer in their business dealings than believers. They're, they're more willing to kind of take risks and maybe bend the rules a little bit. But in that, Jesus doesn't say that what the manager did was right. He just says that the manager was a clever so-and-so. And so, what on earth is the point of this parable? Like, is Jesus saying, well, you should go and do likewise? Go cheat and swindle some people with your money? Be devious in your, in your handling of money? He can't possibly be saying that. Why? Because we just read his teaching, right? where he raised the stakes on money, where he said that how you use your money is going to have an eternal consequence. Will you be faithful or will you be dishonest? He can't possibly be telling us to go and be dishonest, can he? Would you remember what I said was the parable right before this one? The parable of the prodigal son? I think that Luke put these two together to help us understand and interpret each of them from the other. Remember those chapter numbers that we have in our Bibles, right? They, Luke didn't write those chapter numbers. He didn't say chapter 16, 
the parable of the dishonest manager. That wasn't in there. It was one big, long flow of text when Luke wrote it. The chapters were added later. I think he put these two together because he wanted us to see the parallels in the parables. In both parables, the person who's done wrong throws themselves upon the generosity of the person in power. They give all that they have and say, you know what, I'm going to throw myself on this person's generosity, and I'm going to trust that this person is not going to penalize me for it, right? The son does it. He goes back to the father, and he says, I know he's generous, so I'm just going to throw myself at him and hope and believe that he is not going to penalize me for what I've done. And in the dishonest manager parable, he goes, man, I know he's a generous guy, so I'm just going to throw myself on his generosity and believe that he's not going to penalize me, even if I swindle him on the way out. And not only do we see the parallels in the the person who's done wrong, but we see the parallels in the person in power. In both instances, the person in power has the opportunity to make the person who's done wrong pay for their crime. The father could have rejected the prodigal son and said, you've got no place in my house. Or he could have even have said, you know what, you can come, but you can be a servant, and until you've paid off every dime that you owe me, you will be my servant. But he doesn't. He says, come on in. Kill the fan calf, let's have a party. My son's home. And in the same way, in the second parable, the rich man, he could have pressed charges against his former manager. He could have shamed him publicly. He could have had him thrown in prison. Maybe worse. But instead, he chooses to take the cost upon himself. Because he is generous, because he is merciful, because that is who he is. And do you see what Jesus is trying to tell us? Who's the father? Who's the rich man? He's saying that's God our father in heaven. God our father in heaven is generous. He is merciful. He is giving of himself. And you can throw yourself upon God's generosity, no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you have messed things up with your money, no matter how many mistakes you have made with your finances, you can throw yourself upon the generosity of our God and he will welcome you. He will forgive you. He will bring you into his family and he will say, I love you. I love you. You're mine. That's the God that we serve. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make through these parables. Our God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. He's a God of generosity and grace. And he ultimately displayed that by giving his very life for us in the person of Jesus on the cross. God took the costs of our mistakes and failures, whether financial or in any other sphere, upon himself. And because of what Jesus did, anyone who believes in him will have eternal riches and glory. That's the message of the gospel. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Jesus has done. There is no money mistake that can put you outside of God's graces. I know there are people here this morning who will look back on the way they've handled money in the past, or maybe are looking at the way they're handling money right now, and you heard those three Ps, the the purpose, the proving, the pull of money, and you're going, oh my word, I have screwed up, or I am screwing up. How on earth is God going to accept me? The stakes are huge. Jesus is saying, eternal consequences for how I handle money. I am stuffed. And here's what I want you to hear. This morning, you can throw yourself upon the generosity of our God, who will welcome you with open arms, who will forgive you, who will not make you pay the price for your mistakes, but has taken that cost 
upon himself in the person of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the good news for those of us here this morning who have money regrets, money shame, money guilt. So let's turn to that God in prayer right now. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and we are honest that we have made mistakes. We have allowed money to pull us away from loving you. We have not been faithful. We've been dishonest. We have not invested eternally with our money, but we've, we've wasted it. So, Father, we come to you and we acknowledge our shortcomings, our guilt, our sin. In reality, we're no different than the dishonest manager. We've all been dishonest in one way or another. But we thank you that you are a generous God that you gave the gift of your son to us. And we thank you, Jesus, that you bore the cost of our mistakes. You paid the price. And we throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace this morning. We entrust ourselves to you. And we know that you will accept us in spite of our sin. Because in Christ, our sin is forgiven, our shame is washed away, Our guilt is covered. And Holy Spirit, we invite you now to fill us that we may be faithful in the future, that we may invest eternally, that we may not be pulled away from loving Jesus because of money and possessions. Holy Spirit, we need you. We can't do this on our own. So fill us now, we pray, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called us. And we cannot do this in our own strength, but only in and through the strength of Jesus Christ living in us, in whose name we pray.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Sure. 